Songwriter, the podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. In today's episode, we have a brand new song from Carsey Blanton. But first, the story that inspires the song. Today's story is from a friend who wishes to be referred to as Zelda. Zelda has worked as both a stripper and a social worker. And as you'll hear, the two jobs have more in common than you might think. I'm a grief therapist, former aerialist, former dancer, stripper, uh, with a PhD in educational psychology, uh, with a love of language and words. I went to uh, graduate school in Illinois. Turns out it's really hard to find a job in academia, and uh, I tried for a long time. I was raised in a very, like, you know, very Christian, fundamentalist, um, evangelical home. But I've, I've been a trained dancer since I was, you know, in ballet and all of that since I was about three years old. So I knew movement. I knew my body, I knew presentation, and I knew movement. I was also a, a trained aerialist at the time, and I thought, you know what? I can't get a job. I'm going to try this club thing at 31 years old. Um, I auditioned for the first time as a stripper, and I was terrified. Uh, I got hired on the spot, and it was like, okay, let's do this. Here we go. First night, I remember driving to the club, my hands were shaking, and I kept telling myself, turn around, turn around, don't do it. I remember my first uh, lap dance that I ever gave. Um, I'd been working maybe five minutes. I think it was one dance for 30 or four for 100, I don't know, something like that. And he went straight for the four dances, and I'm like, shit, he has no idea that I've never done this before. I mean, sometimes in a night, I do 30 lap dances for 30 different men. And when you think about like, you know, I'm wearing these little tiny, tiny bottoms and just my skin like rubbing up and down against denim all night long. I mean, it, it's painful, it is. You know, we've got the, the nine inch heels and um, you know, the tiny little glitter bottoms. In fact, I remember most of my like stripper bottoms uh, ha- had like some sort of rhinestones or glitter on them. And I, you know, you give so many lap dances that like after a month or so, like all the rhinestones are gone. Zelda sent me a picture of her legs after a night's work, and they're covered in bruises. You can see the picture at the Songwriter Podcast Instagram. However difficult and physically taxing the work was, though, the money was good. Numerically speaking, my nightly average was 800. My best night... I don't know, probably just under 4,000. My worst night is negative. It was obnoxious. Um, Some nights just like, you know, I'm tired and I'm drunk and high and just like shoving cash into my bag just to get out of work as fast as I can. And it's all crumpled up and it's been all over in your clothes and it's got your lipstick marks all over it. So the next morning I would flatten them all out. I have pictures of this and I would put them underneath a frying pan (laughs) just to make sure they stack down a little bit more. It's true because they wouldn't change our ones at the club. There were so many of us, we just had to take what we had and and leave. It's interesting because most of us have jobs where we have a direct deposit magic thing that just goes into your account and you never see anything. But with stripper money, it becomes so personal because it's been on your body. You know, they they want to kind of like, you know, circle it down around you and um, shove it in your panties, got your lipstick marks, get your hair all wrapped up in it. It's a very, you're so much more connected to your income. 
Our slogan is fuck you, pay me. You are there for money, that's it. Being a stripper is a job. It, you know, you go to work to get paid and so did we. And so honestly, as long as I was getting paid, I kind of, within certain limitations, I didn't really care um, whether it was them throwing the money up on the stage or, you know, holding it, waiting for me to come and get it or putting it in my, you know, thong or garter or whatever. Yes, I am there for objectification. This is true. And I am a person and that's hard for them to remember when there's, again, 80 of us circling around all in our underwear. So, you know, they would like, put money on top of their head and they're like, you know, the stage is like right here and they expect, of course, for you to go and get, pick the money off of their head with, you know, your teeth, your butt, you know, your boobs, whatever. It's kind of expected and that's like the funny thing, right? So like, you know, then they, the guys can laugh and it becomes a joke, that's fine. That wasn't as like awful or invasive as, um, for example, one night, an older, very well-dressed man was sitting at the stage um, with a hundred-dollar bill in his mouth looking straight at me. And I thought, okay, well, uh, you know, that must be for me. Um, and as I kind of like, you know, slowly crawl in, you know, lean in to get what I thought was my money, he takes that out of his mouth, shoves it in his pocket and laughs and walks away. And it's like, that one stuck with me. I have learned that young 20-something-year-old men um, uh, want to turn down the hot stripper that comes to sit in, sit in their lap in front of all their friends. It's like, oh, no thank you, I'm married. You know, they always kind of do that. So yes, it's a huge power struggle and everyone knows it. And on top of all of the loud music and flashing lights and drugs and alcohol. It's just this, you know, this environment that doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. It, if you've had 10 no's in a row, going up to that 11th guy just feels excruciating because you're like, I'm probably just gonna get rejected again. And there's something very tangible about that energy. It's like they can tell that you're starting to get a little bit desperate and, you know, and thirsty for some money. And I remember talking to this one guy, I thought it was going well, you know, I um, asked him if he wanted to dance, he said yes, yeah. so I gave him a dance right there on the floor and then he didn't pay me and I'm like, oh well, you know, I gotta move on, so if you wanna pay me, and it became a big ordeal that, um, you know, he didn't ask for the dance and he wasn't going to pay me and then sort of like, he tried to make a joke of it, I guess, and out of nowhere, um, he was a big guy, he just grabbed me and started like flailing me around like a rag doll. Um, he almost dropped me on a glass coffee table, which would have been very bad. Yeah, and after that I think I just went upstairs and cried and went home negative because going home negative means we weren't able to pay our house fees, so I had to pay about 80 bucks a night-ish uh, to work there, and if you don't make that 80 bucks, you gotta go to the ATM to be able to check out. Um, so there's nothing worse than paying your employer to leave when you've been harassed all night. sometimes, well not sometimes, often, almost all the time, uh, driving home or you know Ubering home or something and I would just rip off my eyelashes. Um, it was always a huge relief just to like rip them off and watch them fly away.
just an insane night. This one uh, very young client came in very early on like a Tuesday night and, um, you know, he wanted to go straight up to the champagne room. He hired a couple of us strippers basically just to kind of beat the crap out of him, um, which was my first experience ever doing that. I didn't super enjoy it, but he was paying very well. I think we stayed up there six hours. Uh, and then at the end of the night, his mom came to pick him up. It was very strange. Uh, I honestly don't know how he walked the next day, but I got paid well. <laughs> Kicking him a lot with our nine inch heels. Like he would, you know, give, you know, hand out fifties or hundreds, kick me harder, kick me harder. Um, he wanted to buy the dress that I was wearing put it on, get leashed, and then walked around downstairs in the club. We weren't allowed to do that in spite of his, you know, his greatest efforts. Um, he just wanted to be shamed. The, that night kind of blew my mind, I'm not gonna lie. I, I remember going home and just like hiding under the covers and thinking I didn't really understand what just happened. Actually, I took two weeks off after that night because I was just still a little like, this is very strange. It's just so, so taxing. I mean, it's it's completely exhausting. And not only that, but I was sleeping so badly. I mean, I'd go into work around 10 p.m. Usually wouldn't come home till five, six, seven in the morning. I tried as much as I could, just time on tasks, just going as much as I possibly could. It was it was during the daytime that it was hard to deal with because I, I couldn't tell people why I was sleeping in until noon. I couldn't you know, explain to folks why there were these stacks of money and um, I had to hide that a lot. So that was harder, honestly, than um, the actual club work itself. Not to say that the club work wasn't hard, because it was. You know, I'll admit, I uh, I definitely abused some substance. I, I I definitely felt like I had to had to do that to get through the night. I was also a lot better than the younger women um, at selling the champagne rooms, which meant that I knew for that hour I was paid. The most expensive room for an hour at the club, I think it was like $6,000 for one hour. That's no sex. And they'd pay it. And honestly, for the most part in champagne rooms, they literally just want to talk or take a nap. For the rich guys that have been on these, you know, lavish bachelor parties all weekend, they go to the club, it's late at night, they've had dinner, they're exhausted of each other, they can't stand each other anymore. So, of course, if they're rich enough, hell yeah, I'll pay for a room, I get to go upstairs with you, it's quiet, there's a couch, there's a TV, we get to choose our room, have a drink. They would often fall asleep right on the couch and I just, you know, stroke their hair, make sure everything is quiet, it's like, you know, putting a baby to sleep. Um, and when the hour is up, the bouncer comes in and says, would you like to renew? And I kind of like wake him up like, oh, you want to give him your credit card again? Uh-huh, okay. And of course they always consented. I never, you know, like, you know, tried to take anyone for their money in the sense that they weren't, you know, consenting. Yeah, run the credit card again. Let's, let's have another, you know, very expensive nap. There are times, of course, when deeper connection happens. Um, and that was always, those are some of my most beautiful memories. Um, it's few and far between, but it does happen. I was at the stage one night and this kind of young, skinny, little white kid, he's just like, you know, his face is full of light and joy and he's just watching me dance on the stage. And so I kind of crawled up to him and 
He's like, it's my birthday tonight. I just turned 21. I said, oh, great. Well, I'll come talk to you when I'm down on the stage. So I, I get down on the stage and I see what table he's at. He's at a table with two older women. And so I start talking to him there. He was like, these are my moms. So his moms took him to the club for his 21st birthday. And um, he, I started talking with them. They were great. They're like, well, let's buy him a lap dance. So they gave me money and I escorted him back to the lap dance area, gave him his lap dance. I mean, his face the whole time was just like, it was, it was full of glee, it was adorable. And we were coming to the end of the song and I could tell you wanted more. And I said, well, would you like another one? He said, yes, stay right here. I need to go ask my moms for some money. So he went back, asked his moms for some money. And this happened like two or three times, I think. So it was just such a good experience all around. Everyone loved it. Uh, it was the sweetest thing. I was definitely one of the older dancers there, older strippers. Um, and you know, having the ability to like connect to people on a different level, not only because of my educational attainment, but because of my age. Um, I did enjoy those times when I could, you know, on a weeknight, say, get a deeper conversation. He walked into the club. I actually thought he was just very drunk or fucked up. Um, he was kind of stumbling and slurring his words and none of the dancers would go and talk to him, but I did. Um, and he said, you know, I, uh, I want you to know I'm not going to hurt anyone. I'm very safe. He said, I have, I have Parkinson's disease and I, I just want to, you know, I just want to chat with you for a little while. Uh, we went, you know, straight upstairs to the room and to the champagne room. And that's really all it was. He just wanted, you know, he wanted me to sit next to him and, you know, like cuddle him. And um, he wanted to pay for that attention. And, and he said, uh, it's been a long time since I've been around uh, a woman. Uh, that will, you know, give me that attention. I didn't have many regulars, but I did have one. He was actually a professor of philosophy at Tulane, I think. <laughs> it was like, you know, he would just come in to pay to kind of like complain and whine and I would, you know, listen and with, with empathy. definitely dawned on me that yes this is bigger than just I'm gonna grind in your lap for a song um, I entertained one man who was uh, who was blind um, you know he had the the cane and the whole thing and he just he passed me money uh, and he just sat there and he said just tell me about everything that you see and I would just describe and I, it, it actually was a beautiful moment because I never really looked around at the club very much or looked at the other dancers and it was a moment that I got to sit back and relax and tell him about the insanity that was happening. I had a, a regular um, who I only saw a handful of times but he uh, was paraplegic or quadriplegic, I can't remember which one. You know, the wheelchair, you know, leg bag, everything. We'd go straight up to the champagne room. I, I had to like hold his drink for him to drink um, when it was time for him to like, you know, have to empty his bag in the bathroom. He would call his buddy up there. I realized pretty quickly, like, you know, we we all kind of want these same things. We want to be seen and heard. Um, we want to feel important. They often told me things very quickly that they would probably never tell anyone else, not even their own wives or girlfriends or whatever. Um, so in that sense, it is like being, you know, a regular therapist or a pants therapist because, um, you know, it's the same thing. You're paying for the hour. You're telling deep, dark secrets. Um, and you're, you're, you're having that undivided attention and, and being heard. We all have needs and, you know, it's like Maslow's hierarchy. We want to fill the basic needs and then we can kind of make our lives better. And that's um, certainly one of the, one of the things that uh, the strip club can provide.
We're all sort of these card-carrying humans with all of these desires and insecurities and um, meeting on, you know, like the same level um, is a very revealing and beautiful experience, which, you know, then led me into doing what I do now, which is the same thing, except I wear pants and I get paid a lot less. <laughs> so um, my, my income went down and my tax bracket went up. <laughs> So I stripped full-time for just under four years. I just made it to four years. Um, and around year two, I started to get angry. I started to get anxious. I started to abuse substance even more. I started really kind of plummeting and thinking, I gotta have an out. I knew I had all this education and then this big gap on my CV and I had no idea what to do next. Um, and so I actually went to a, um, a, a career therapist, I guess at the time is what she called herself, who specialized in life transitions. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Uh, and she said, well, I mean, sounds like you're kind of doing therapy. Don't, maybe you could become a therapist. And I said, no, I don't want to listen to there, listen to people's problems all day, which was what I was already doing. So I thought about it a little bit more and I thought, okay, well, to do that, I've got to go back to school, get another master's degree. Let's try it. So I applied, I got in for the Masters of Social Work program, um, I started doing it and I kind of realized how good I was at it and how much I loved it and how much um, that experience of helping people and relating to people uh, and holding up that mirror, you know, I, I was good at it and I could then do it in a new healthy way, in a way that was sustainable because my other way was not sustainable at all. I've come into contact recently with some um, women that I used to dance with, um, who I now, you know, work with uh, on a different level. Now, I know and see and recognize my privilege in terms of being able to really get out of that situation. And that is not, I am exceptional in that way. That is not the case for most uh, strippers. They either get stuck in that world or they have no option afterwards or, um, Getting out of that uh, type of lifestyle is is much harder um, for some people than it was for me. Um, I was lucky that I had the money to go back to school and that I don't have kids that I have to take care of. You know, a lot of things were in my favor um, to be able to transition uh, out of the club. It's, you know, I remember my first uh, stripper mama, um, you know, she kind of like led me around and showed me what to do. She said, you know, everyone asks why you got into this, but no one asks how are you going to get out of it. So I absolutely love the field of hospice. You know, we're all going to die. No one gets out of here alive. And recognizing that, accepting it with grace helps you live the best life that you possibly can in the years that you have left. The most grateful and um, happy people, honestly, are the ones that are about to die and they know it. Um, it's the families usually that that's, it's harder to deal with that. We don't do a, a good enough job in our society of allowing people their grief and allowing people their sadness. It's like, oh, look at the happy stuff. Let's not pay attention to the sad stuff because people are so uncomfortable with sitting with sadness. They can't hold space for that. And that's understandable. No one wants to see anyone hurting or sad. You have to learn to grieve well because we're just not taught how to do that. It's like cover everything up, you know, put lipstick on it, make it pretty, forget that you feel things. Life is beautiful and sucky and hard and 
you know, magical. And if we can't recognize all of those things, then we're really kind of doing ourselves a disservice and we're not living a full life. Humans do things that work. You know, if you have a really hard life and you find substance and it makes you happy, you're gonna keep doing that. And if you've lived long enough in addiction, I mean, my God, and that's all you know, getting out of that world and finding new happiness and new ways to be yourself is, is so, so hard. Um, and so I'm very, I'm very passionate about that, about rediscovering life after trauma, after loss, moving forward with as much grace as possible. Much in the same as it was with stripping, I am in a room alone with a person as they divulge to me some of their deepest, darkest shames and secrets and difficulties. In Man in the Champagne Room, if they want to order pizza or play Twister or whatever it is, as long as it's mostly legal-ish, you can have it. And it's the same thing in hospice, you know, like you want a cigarette and a glass of wine the day before you die, you can have it. Anything that we could do for them um, in their final days, we did. They know that this is their final chapter and that that's okay and that's normal. So many people just don't want to look at death, don't want to think about it, don't want to talk about it. I am far happier, far, far happier now making a fraction of the insane cash that I used to make because I'm stable, I'm healthy, I sleep. <laughs>
And I also think that because sex and death are two of the biggest taboos culturally, um, it shows a real fearlessness to embrace both of those jobs. Like, I'm here to, to give you an experience in this area that generally people aren't supposed to experience things or we're not supposed to talk about that kind of experience. So you're sort of this stranger coming in to, like, Sherpa someone through a taboo experience. And that includes, like, being turned on and also um, going through grief, grieving and dying. That was such a beautiful expression of um, her personality that she's has the fear, the bravery to uh, walk into those two like foreign lands with strangers. People shy away from a lot of the topics and emotions that are that are the most important, the most vital for us to experience and express. So in my own work as a songwriter, I think I've always had a sort of like gravity around topics that people don't like to talk about. My work includes a lot of sexuality and part of my job as an artist is like to find the the spots that um, are tender for people, find the areas that people have a tough time talking about or emoting about, and then trying to write songs that allow them to do that. We have sort of a joke in my band. I, I tour with uh, three guys who, two of them have been playing with me for a really long time, and there's sort of a joke of about like the things that people say to me at the CD table at the end of the show, <laughs> because I've gotten a lot of just really intense, you know, commentary from strangers, especially women and especially older women often relate to that and feel that they get some kind of like sense of them, their selves as a sexual being out of my song. So I've had a lot of like middle-aged women come up to me at the CD table and say, I had the best sex of my life to your music, or I, a guy introduced me to your song and then we had this torrid love affair or whatever. <laughs> I've also had a lot of people come up and say stuff like, you know, I listened to your songs while I was going through chemo, or I listened to your album after I lost my husband. I try to create a space for people to have these intense experiences of taboo emotions with my work. So I think in a way that's something else I related to. We're sort of creating these safe spaces for people to experience really intense things and that it makes us, even if we're strangers, it does make us sort of a proxy for those emotions. I have a lot of friends who are sex workers or former sex workers, and although I've never done that work myself, I think one of the reasons I relate to those people is because we have a shared experience of, of like you were saying, being a conduit for this intense experience that strangers are having, um, which sort of allows them to come up to us and say really wild things. <laughs> and I also think that we have... I don't want to say that we there's a unique relationship to capitalism because I don't think it is unique, but I think that when you're doing work that's very emotional or sexual, it really lays bare the awkwardness of trading that kind of labor for money. You know, here I've gone on the stage and put all this uh, mental and physical and spiritual energy into creating this experience for people, and then what I get in exchange is a stack of bills like sexuality has this element of being about creating life even when you're a stripper even when you're a cam girl I think one of the reasons that sex is important to people is because it is ultimately like a hopeful and creative act it's about affirming life and then death is sort of the idea of going into the light so I'm kind of like I'm seeing this circle you know we're created by this spark of sexuality and then at the end we return to whatever that is that same spark I do try, especially in my newer work, to like package these political concepts, which I got from like reading political theory, <laughs> like, you know, Chomsky and stuff. And I'm like, all right, 
most people are not going to read a book by Chomsky. Like, we're not going to read a whole book to figure this out. So, like, how can I drill down to, like, the human part of these ideas, touching you in an emotional and a physical way so that you can kind of take on this idea without all of the work of reading a whole book? <laughs> just started doing shows again and one thing I'm really noticing is how much being a performer is about giving people an emotional space because people are just tore up right now like there's so much grief and so much anxiety just in any crowd of people in America <laughs> right now like I have friends who are sex workers and they're technically being paid for sex and they talk to me a lot about how much of the time they end up talking or holding someone through the night and they get paid the same amount because it's it ultimately like you're saying it isn't really about sex it's really about something bigger it's about something really beautiful and if we didn't have so many taboos about sex i think we would maybe be able to say like oh this is this lovely thing you get to pay someone to like physically be with you and be there for you and pay attention to you and listen to you and that's like that's lovely being a performer is also kind of like that. It's like you're trying to create this space for people to have a catharsis that they really need, that everyone really needs, and especially in times like this that are so trying for everybody. What they're really saying at the CD table and at the strip club and when they go to grief counseling is, witness me, let me tell you my story, give me your attention, listen to me. You know, whether it's because you're a beautiful woman who's naked or whether it's because you wrote a song that they really liked, it's like you, you're important and I need you to look at me while I tell you that. And that's the job. And it's a pretty good job in that way. It's nice to be able to witness somebody. This is Carsey Blanton with her song, Into the Light. Bring me your lonely, your broken and blind, your wretched who long to be blessed. I'll give them a dance and a hell of a time and a soft place to lay down and rest. It's a job, all right. It's a real long night. When I go dancing back into the light I know that I won't be afraid No regrets, so I won't be afraid Bring me your sickened and ready to die Your saddened and ready to grieve I'll give them some comfort, a shoulder soft place to lay down and leave it's a job okay it's a real long day and i've earned every penny i made when i go dancing back into the light i know that i won't be afraid no regrets so i won't be afraid That was Carsey Blanton with her song, Into the Light. 
The next episode will feature the story of Halston, told by producer Ned Martell, and a piano instrumental written in response by superstar songwriter Stefan Macchio. Songwriter is 100% independently produced, put together by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artists and producer who work on it, please sign up for a premium subscription from Apple or just go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, why not check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.